Good morning. Pray with me one more time. Kind Father, as we open your word as your people, uh, we ask that you would speak to us by your spirit. That the words that uh, I say, Lord, um, ultimately mean nothing unless you come and speak to us. So between each line that I say, Holy Spirit, come and, and speak to the hearts of your people. Reveal what you declare in your word. Encourage your people. And that we would uh, live more, live out holiness and righteousness before you. And that we would truly be your people and you are God, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. It was supposed to be the happiest of days. A new son, a new heir, a future priest. But not this time. For the mother, as she was giving birth, even in the, even in the, the joy of a, a newborn baby, all that was obscured by the tragedy of that day. Just moments earlier, her father-in-law, the high priest, died. Her husband and his brother died in battle just moments earlier. And she, too, realized that she wasn't going to make it through the day. This newborn son would grow up an orphan, would never nurse from his mother's breasts. But even then, her thoughts were on something worse, something more tragic, both for her life and for the life of her people. See, in that moment, she realized, well, something more pressing of it, who the, that defines who they are as a people is gone. The ark of God has been taken. God himself has left his people. And who are they without God? Who are they without the Lord? Have they just been fools this whole time? Wandering about, believing the stories of all that God has supposedly done through Moses and Joshua to, to lead them out of Egypt, to defeat the gods of the nation, to give them this land. Have they just been foolish in believing such stories of old? And so as her, as her newborn son is born, in her dying moments, she names him Ichabod, meaning where is the glory? Where is the glory of God? Because it's not here. It's not among his people. It's not where he belongs. No, God himself is in exile. He's been captured. He's been taken. He's with the Philistines in Philistia. Where is the glory? It's just not here. And such a sentiment is often felt by the people of God throughout the centuries. Living in a hostile culture where it seems that the people of God are, are struggling and flailing and wondering where he is, wishing that he would reveal his power and might, but he seems that he is gone. Where is the glory? It's not here. And she, like us oftentimes, living in the aftermath of God's seeming failure, wondering where he is, and what to do about that. And if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 5. If you have 
one of the, the Pew Bibles, you can turn to page uh, 278. If you remember from a few weeks ago, we began this journey in, in chapter 4. And, you know, if you remember that the people of God, Israel, is, is fighting against their oppressors, the Philistines. And they are, well, they lost the, they lost the battle. And they had the, the idea, well, you know what's going to help us? Well, well, God will help us. So let's bring the ark. Let's bring his presence to our midst. Let him come out. Let's put his name on the line so that he will go out and he'll save us and defeat our enemies. But God doesn't save. God doesn't deliver. God himself is held captive and taken away from his people and his place. And so, as we turn to chapter 5, this is what we read. So after the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. They carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off. They were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. And that is why to this day neither the priest of Dagon or any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. And the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. And he brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. And when the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us. Because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. And they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, Well, what are we going to do with the ark of God? Or ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Well, have the ark of God of Israel moved to Gath, another one of the Philistine cities. So they moved the ark of God of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. And so they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And as the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They've brought the ark of the God of Israel around to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, where it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy upon it. And those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. And when the ark of the Lord had been in the Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, how shall we send it back to its place? Imagine what it would be like just for a moment to be Israel during that seven months. You have no idea what the Lord is doing in Philistia. All you know, all you know is that a little while ago, we were trusting in God. He failed us. He was captured. And so you're dealing with all the what-if questions or now-what questions of, well, now what since the ark of God is captured. Since the ark of God is captured, well, what are we to do with the stories of Moses leading us out of Egypt, 
of Joshua helping us conquer the land. Now that the ark of God is captured, who do we put our faith in? Who do we trust to save us? As who do we answer Joshua's question not too long ago of which of the nations are we going to serve? Uh, which of the nation's gods are we going to serve? Who's going to deliver us now? Now that God is gone, who are we as a people? Are we just a loose federation of tribes? Who are we? And in such questions, when it seems that God is gone and uh, and has failed his people, there's a tendency among the people of God to go in multiple ways, oftentimes to despair. Well, it seems that, that God has gone. And now what are we to do? That the, the, the world in which my children and grandchildren are going to live is going to be radically different than my own. The values of this culture are going to be radically different from those of the kingdom of God. That the people of God, as we reside in, in a world where it seems that God has been pushed out, carried away, thought of as a failure, enter into this world oftentimes with despair or anger. We've got to gather together. We've got to man together. We've got to take back what belongs to us. We look for strong men to fight our battles for us. We look for intellectuals to make well, well, our ideas seem more palatable. We look for cool people to make it seem like it's, it's worth following. Within a culture that has routinely and resoundly rejected God and his values, and his ways. And despair and anger and sometimes hopelessness marks the people of God living in a culture that are you know, facing the cultural headwinds, that are trying to, to make their way in a culture that says, nope, faithfulness is not in vogue right now. But that is not the response of the people of God. That's not the response. That within such a society where it seems that God has been pushed out, the response of the people of God is to rejoice. Because in the time when God seems to be exiled, we see the movement and the hand of God at work in a new and powerful ways. We rejoice that within the exile of God himself, he is identifying with the exile of his people. There is, if you haven't caught it, the, the imagery of exile as the ark of God is captured. And they take and they place him in the temple of Dagon. Now imagery can be one of those things that communicates far louder than our words ever could. Image, images can, can convey the truth and the values uh, well, that oftentimes we may deny with our lips. Back in Elizabeth City, where we were, we were spending, there was a Christian college there, and on the, uh, they had this you know, big flagpole in the center of campus, and on that flagpole, at the very top, you know, we, we come across this big, beautiful, majestic American flag. And right underneath it, the Christian flag. Now, what does that image communicate? 
it communicates at some level that the American flag, that America itself, either in terms of authority or in terms of its demand of loyalty, takes precedence, is supreme over the Christian flag. And I actually got a chance to ask the president about it, and he says, well, you know, the flag code says. I'm like, well, the flag code is demanding something that it ought not demand. And no matter how many times you write one nation under God on our currency, when you proclaim, when you hoist up the American flag over the Christian flag, what you're saying is, this is what takes precedence. This is what's supreme in authority or in loyalty. It is the image that shows the true value of where we as, as a nation, like when they demand that the American flag stay on top, it shows the values of that culture. And as they take the Ark of God and they place it beside Dagon, they put it in his, in his temple like a, like a trophy. They put it beside him like Yahweh has been made into the servant of Dagon. He has been reduced from the, the God of heaven and earth has been made the servant of the idol. They place it beside there. Now the Philistines didn't think that, that the Lord was powerless. No, 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 no. Right? Remember back in, in chapter 4 when they see that the ark of God has been carried out, they say, oh man, nothing like this has ever happened to us before. We're doomed. Chapter 4, verse 8. Who's going to deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods, the gods that struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness? They don't believe that the Lord is useless or impotent. They believe he, well, he's subservient. Dagon has won. You can imagine the Philistines singing some, some kind of version of you know, the Chris Tomlin song, Our God is greater, our God is stronger. Dagon, you're higher than any other. Awesome in power, right? He's won. He's defeated Yahweh. He's made him into his servant. And because of that, what happens? Well, Yahweh suffers shame. The whispers among the nation, he's been conquered. He's been defeated He's been put in his place. He is not the supreme God that the Hebrews claim he is. No, 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 no. He's become a servant. He's become little. And so the, the people of God worrying about that, but in there, as the Lord suffers shame, he does so on behalf of his people. Right? If you remember that this is... the you know, at the end of the era of the judges. And what marks the era of the judges for pe the people of God? Sin and idolatry and doing what's right in their own eyes and living life as, as they desire, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord has been faithful and they have not. Who deserves to go into exile? It's not the Lord. It's the people. And yet what we see as the ark is carried and the Lord goes into exile. He is going to exile on behalf of his people. The shame that they deserved, he takes on. The punishment for their sins, he's bearing. The whispers of the nations of that scorn and mark, which should be them, 
is on him. That he suffers shame for the people. So the people of God are called to to rejoice in exile because we know that the Lord is there with us. He does not abandon his people in exile. He does not abandon his people to the fate. No, he goes in there, the fate that we deserve and we alone deserve, he takes on. And for many of us as it's the people of God in a world where we're you know, swimming upstream against strong cultural currents, and we may be tempted to despair, we can rejoice in this, that God is with his people. And whether we see things like you know, people openly saying to target churches because Roe v. Wade was overturned, or men like Brendan Eich fired from their jobs just for simply holding Christian position on sexuality and marriage. Or students in their classroom feeling they have to keep silent as the teacher or their peers proclaim well, values that are hostile to the way of God. And we realize that this doesn't seem to be the world in which well, God is truly reigning We feel like we're outsiders in our own hometown, and yet what we know, what we know, what we know is that God is there with us. He hasn't abandoned his people. He hasn't left us to our our own, but no, the, the very presence of God resides with his people even in exile. So I rejoice that God identifies with us and is with us in exile, but I also rejoice in this that the Lord unmasks the gods of the nations in exile. Read with me, verses uh, 3 through 5 again. What does he say? When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And so they took Dagon, and they put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, well, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off. They were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. And that's why to this day, neither the priest of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple of Ashdod step on the threshold. Now, there's something humorous about this account. And I'm sure as, you know, the little Hebrew children had it read to them, they would probably burst into uproarious laughter at this moment. But what is funny is, is also a, a poignant reminder about the nature of, of who we are as people. What do we do when our idols fall? What do we do when the things that we're looking to for salvation fail us? Well, we put them right back in their place, don't we? We do the same thing that the Philistines do. When the things that we look to for our salvation, apart from God, the things that we think are, are, well, are going to give us the good life and offer it to us. And they fail us again and again and again. Well, what do we do? Well, we put them right back where they belong. And this reveals not only the, the inability of the idols, but also that there's something about the human heart. Something about how we act when these things happen. That we cling to these things rather than turn and serve the Lord with a whole heart. They didn't turn to repentance when these things happened, did they? No, they said, oh, man, let's put Dagon in his place. 
Let's send the ark away. They hear the, the invitation of God, God proving who he is, and yet they cling to what they know. The other day, I was, uh, we, my family and I were, were going out for uh, ice cream, and we're sitting there as uh, we were eating, or you know, the children were eating because it took them a really, really long time. Um, and then came you know, a, a couple people who were walking in on one of the guy's shirts read this phrase, in science we trust. And the message was clear. It's not in God that we would trust. Only the rubes would do such a thing. We saw how the world was when people trusted in God. We trust in science. Science gives us life-saving vaccines. Science sends men to the moon. Science gives us uh, pesticides that prevent famine and irrigation systems that, that give water even when there's a drought. Science saves lives. It cures diseases. It preserves people. God, what need of him do we have? Now, to steal a turn of phrase from Dallas Willard, science is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. And we can absolutely praise you know, some of the advances of science to, to help people, modern medicine, and the ability of, to, to pre, you know, prevent uh, famine and, and drought and all these things. It's, it's a wonderful tool. But what we also see in this world is that when science and reason become idols, it doesn't lead anywhere good, does it? Whether it's the French Revolution where they set up the idol to reason, leading to deadly bloodbaths across the country. Whether it's the, the race-based American slave system that pointed to science and said, hey, listen, some people are just lesser than and denying the fact that God has made people in his image, all people. Or the eugenics movement that said, you know, it, we'd really be better off as a people if we just got rid of the, the losers. Or the Jews. Or the gypsies. Or perhaps it was when science in the communist re revolution that said, this is the natural way. And a hundred million dead later, well, science had once again failed. See, science and reason can't lead us to the good life by themselves. It is a wonderful tool, but a terrible master. And yet we look again and again to it for salvation and, and to save as a society and a culture. And we can look down on those who cling to silly things like faith in God. And yet God reveals to us. God reveals to his people his goodness and his ability to offer the good life. And in, and in exile, God allows the impotence of our idols to shine. Their inability to actually do what we think that they can do to save and to deliver. And lastly, in exile, I rejoice that the Lord wins through weakness. This is the continuation of the, the story of Judges. And what do we see in the book of Judges? Well, we see in Gideon that the Lord defeats the enemies of his people through what? 300 men. 
armies upon armies, and yet the Lord defeats them with 300 men. We see in Samson that the Lord defeats the enemies of his people with what? One man. With one man. And here, as we conclude the era of the judges, we see that the Lord defeats the enemies of his people by himself. Without any human aid. That the the ark is captured. It's taken into Dagon's temple. It's set up as a monument to the foolishness of God's people. That Yahweh himself has been made a servant. And yet, through his weakness, through his shame, through his exile, the Lord uh, achieves the victory for his people. They believe that the Lord has fallen into their hand, but they have fallen into the Lord's hand. It's like one of those scenes from a, like a Mission Impossible movie or, or something of that nature where you know, they pretend to be captured in order to kind of infiltrate the enemy in order to achieve the victory. And this is exactly what the Lord has done. He suffers the shame of the moment and yet through that defeats the enemy. And so we hear again and again that, they have fall, that the, the hand, Lord's hand was heavy upon them. Verse 6, the Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod. Verse 9, and after they moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city. Verse 11, for death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy upon it. They have fallen into his hand. And through the weakness of God, he delivers. This isn't something new to us, is it? Paul remarks of what the Lord said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In weakness. That when, through weakness, that the Lord saves his people. And through weakness, he conquers. And as the people of God, often struggling in a culture where you know, we're going against the cultural headwinds, and it seems that the people of God are weak, and it seems that all is lost, and it seems that things are hopeless. Well, we have a God who is powerful in weakness, don't we? While his people, while the people of God are in bondage, oppressed by their enemies, of the world and the flesh and the devil, how does God respond to that? Well, the presence of God comes into his people. He suffers shame on their behalf. The Son of God hoisted on a cross, lifted up naked for all to see and to mock him pervasively. But it was for our sake that he did it, didn't he? It was there he took our shame, the punishment for our sins, that we who should be hanged naked, that we should be put in open display, yet he took it for his people. And in doing so, what what do we read? That, That he put the powers of this world to open shame. And in so doing, he defeats the enemies of God's people by himself, and for himself. That what we could not do, God in Christ has done. And so we rejoice. 
because we can delight in the work of God in this world, that even when he seems to be pushed out to the side, to be left on the margins, well, we know that what? That the God of heaven and earth doesn't, isn't defeated so easily. That they can take the ark of God, but God is not contained in those 19 cubic feet. But that is the footstool of the Lord of heaven and earth, through, through whom he allows, he takes on our shame, that through the weakness, he can save his people. He is not done. The words of Isaiah the prophet, spoken hundreds of years later, they were true then, they were true before, and they are true now. What does the Lord say? I am Yahweh. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. And so he defeats the enemies of God's people for himself. And as the world and the flesh and devil rage against the people of God, we know that the power of God is still at work. And so his people dwelling in these seven months between God's exile and return, or the disciples who are living between Good Friday and Easter, or to the people of God today living between the ascension and the return, or it seems that the world has passed us by, know this. God is not so easily defeated, is he? As G.K. Chesterton wrote uh, famously that Christianity has died many times and risen again for has a God that knows his way out of the grave. And when all seems lost, when he seems defeated, when the chance of God's enemies seems so strong and they so smug, we remember that the church is an anvil that wears out many hammers. That, that the promises of Christ are true. He's building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Thanks be to God. Let's invite up the worship team and let's pray. Kind Father, we ask that you would encourage your people once again this morning. That you would breathe life into our souls. That you will always reign victorious. That even in the moment where it seems that you are gone and left where the chants and the cries of your enemy seem so pervasive, yet we know that you will win, that you are worth trusting, that when we ask, well, where is the glory? And it doesn't seem to be here. We know that your sovereign hand is at work doing all that you desire to reveal who you are, the worthlessness of idols, and your glory that is won for your people through your weakness, through your shame, that we might rejoice in it. We give you all thanks and praise and honor in the name of Jesus. Amen.